Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz All right, Brendan, here we are yet again, Sunday night, uh, April 25th. Uh, got got, uh, got quite the show in store for people. What are we talking about? Yeah, so this week we have a special episode. We have two interviews this week, first time we've done that. And so the episode will largely just be those interviews and we'll, we'll turn it over to them shortly. Uh, we wanted to reflect on policing in the United States. Um, And it's certainly been the news in the past week with the Derek Chauvin verdict out of Minneapolis and um, the unfortunate continued uh, killings of young black people by police officers across our country. And and several of those videos have gone viral over the past week or so. And so in our effort to continue to bring uh, diverse perspectives and different voices onto the show, uh, we're joined by two guests this week. Uh, The first one is going to be a woman, Salome Cassini, who is uh, a current classmate of mine in, in law school, um, and she's going to uh, talk a little bit uh, about her perspective as, as a Black woman sitting back and, and watching these events unfold and her thoughts on the, the George Floyd incident, the Derek Chauvin verdict, and uh, the unfortunate continued violence against you know young people of color. And then uh, the second guest that we have is another classmate of mine, actually, um, Rocco Alexis, who before coming to law school served in the Tempe, the Tempe, Arizona Police Department for eight years. And so he's going to give us his perspective on uh, these incidents specifically uh, as you know, a former police officer, but also step back and look generally at, at policing in the United States. So uh, I feel like we're really lucky that we're going to be able to hear both of their perspectives. And I think, and I hope that uh, people will enjoy those, their perspectives as well. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. All right. Um, before we get into those, uh, quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, the guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you, if you're a lonely person, Ricky, a Cannon Hill table is a conversation piece you can talk about with yourself. <laughs> these just keep getting better the best all right uh without further ado let us get into our first interview with salome cassini all right so now we are excited to welcome salome cassini onto the program salome is a classmate of mine at, at suffolk law school a, a umass graduate and we're excited to hear her perspective on what has been a difficult week a difficult year um, in terms of uh, a lot of like police violence, um, particularly against Black people, I um, mean, particularly in this last week, we got the Derek Chauvin verdict, and so she's on to give some of her thoughts, not only big picture wise on some of the the race and violence issues plaguing our country, but also on particular thoughts um, about the George Floyd saga and the Chauvin trial. So, Salome, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
All right. So I want to start by taking it back to last summer, summer of 2020. We have, Ricky and I have talked about this um, previously, but we have the the murder of George Floyd in uh, the beginning of June of 2020. And then the, the country really erupts um, with these protests across the nation in all of our different cities um, with the really like racial, racially diverse, uh, I would say, uh, outpouring of outrage against the the police officers that did this to George Floyd and support for um, black communities that have been affected by this violence. And one of the things that stood out to me and Rick, I had asked Ricky about his thoughts on this too, and want to hear your thoughts is, why do you think there was such a reaction to this killing? Because as we're all aware, this was not, you know, the first killing that like this that we have seen. Unfortunately, we've seen far too many of these in the past few years, and I'm sure there are so many that we haven't seen. So, what what, what do you think about the the George Floyd killing um, that you know provoked such a strong reaction across our country that we hadn't really seen previously? I think it has to do with the circumstances. Honestly, one, this was a police call for a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. Um, there wasn't violence going on. It was just like, hey, there was a fraud case here. And two, I think it was the manner of the killing, really. Like, okay, you have a big guy, he's restrained, he's on the ground, your knee is on his neck, um, and the public is like, hey, he's saying he can't breathe, he can't breathe. Um, and I think the public was shocked that someone that's supposed to protect the community, someone that they're supposed to trust on, were told our whole lives to trust, didn't care that he was hurting someone. And I think that's terrifying for a lot of people. Like, wow, if we, the people who are supposed to be protected by this government and by its um, officers, can't even tell a police officer, hey, you're hurting someone, you're about to kill someone, their lives are in danger, then what does that mean for them? You know, now it reflects back onto them. Like, if I was in that position, is that also going to happen to me too? Right. And I think in, in that sense, that's what a lot of like black people, particularly black males have been you know, feeling and saying for a long time is that this, this fear that we have in these, in these interactions with police officers, but you know, it was the, the broadness of the coalition of people that were standing up and, and speaking out that I, that really felt different to me. And I think there were, I'm sure, you know, a lot of black people sitting back and be like, we've been telling you this for years that this is what's happening to us. Right. And not to be critical, but it's been like this, that that's where I'm trying to try to get at more is because, you know, maybe the outrage for me, like that, I, I that's still that. I still don't have that fear that that could happen to me for better, for worse. Like that's like my outrage wouldn't have stemmed from like, if I was in that position, I think the police would have done the same thing to me. Cause I don't think they would have done the same thing to me. So I, I, I don't, I, I, that's still something that I'm trying to reconcile. And Ricky, we've talked about like, Selma, you said circumstances and like, what was it that we were all kind of locked in for, for COVID and we, you know, we had, had to listen to the news and we had to see this. We, we couldn't hide from this and just go, you know, turn on sports or go out to the bars with our friends. We had to really like um, try to reconcile what, what we're seeing. And I, I'm sure that I do believe that's part of it too, but um, I don't know, Ricky or Selma, any other thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, so much of, of what you said, just how, how how we got to see all aspects of it right not just what happened between the police officer and george floyd but also the crowd being like yo he's telling you he cannot breathe and you're just sitting there driving your knee further into his his neck 
Um, but, but Brendan, like what you were saying in terms of, yeah, just the, the circumstance and, and that we were, you know, as a society, as a country, as a, as a world for, for better or worse, really locked in and locked on to kind of what was going on in the news and forced not to, not to shrug it off as just like, you know, this is just another day in the life of, of America, really. Yeah. And if I may not even just that you brought up a really good point with it also being COVID being a big factor. And let's not forget, it wasn't like George Floyd started it. If you remember leading from COVID, it was a building case, Breonna Taylor, who passed in March. Um, I correct me if I'm wrong. I believe I can't pronounce his name. Ahmed, who was jogging and then Ahmaud he Arbery. got, yeah, yeah. Ahmaud Arbery, who got um, attacked the bird watch guy who in New York, like it was constantly building it. And this was it like, Oh my gosh, how much pain and suffering does the community have to go through? And I think just enough was enough. Yeah. No, that, that's a good point. It's like all that, like the kindling and the Tinder had been laid. And this was really kind of the match, like the final one, like spark that set everything off. That, that, that's a good point. Um, so Derek Chauvin, the, the main officer involved in this is arrested and his trial just has been going on over the course of the past month. And so Salome, I'd be curious, what were your expectations headed into the trial? I'm a bit of a pessimist, I will admit that. Um, for me, my initial thought was, okay, they're gonna let him go. They always let them go. So it, it is what it is. Um, and I, do, I think actually one of my friends, I was like, one of my friends called me casually. He was like, oh my gosh, did you hear? Did you hear? I was like, what? Like the trial. I was like, oh, just as I thought. They're like, oh no, he was convicted. And I was surprised. I was genuinely surprised. I had to sit with it. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, like justice actually, I don't want to say justice, but like, you know, the verdict finally went in the right direction, I believe. Um, and to give like a big of a background to my pessimism, the first time I personally was even aware of like, the injustice in the criminal justice system was Trayvon Martin when he passed back in like 2013. And, you know, that was recorded and people like, you know, witnessed that situation, but still his killer was like, let go, like, okay, there wasn't enough evidence. Um, and then since then from him, we kept witnessing all these trials where a black person was killed by a police officer or someone appointed to such a role and they were just let go. So. With Chauvin, I truly thought this was just going to be like clockwork. You know, they're going to let him go, even despite how damning the um, the evidence was against him. I'm like, they're just going to let him go at the end of the day. So when he was convicted, I want to say I wanted to be happy. I really did. Like, of course, it was a great thing. But to me, it was just like, okay, is this like a shooting star? Was this a rare occasion? Like, you know, like I'm not going to start jumping and cheering. I don't. I'm not against people who are cheering. I think it's a great thing. It's definitely something to celebrate because, you know, in a small sense, justice was achieved. Justice was won. But for me, this is about the system. Like, okay, this was great. But as you all know, like in the same day, a girl lost her life to another police officer. So I, how could I even celebrate that, you know? Yeah, in the same city even, like yeah. a few days before the trial, right? Dante, right. It's so... the um. I think I think that perception or that feeling that you had of you know it is okay for me to celebrate a, a, a small piece of justice in in a you know an arc of never really seeing that or seeing multiple 
opportunities for justice and always being denied that, right? Um, I thought a lot about uh, the Eric Garner case because unlike some of the other police shootings where it was always like, well, he made a split second decision. How are you going to question that? There's another case where a police officer uses a chokehold and essentially chokes the life out of somebody uh, over a, a an extended period of time, right? I guess maybe my question is, how much did you feel that this trial, and Kelly, I, I know, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm derailing the the lining here, but how much did you feel that this trial was a trial of Derek Chauvin versus a trial of, you know, the system, sort of the broader, because a lot of the emotions evoked were about kind of the systemic injustices in this country? I think. And that's what the defense for Derek Chauvin really was doing well, yeah. I would say. They were like, hey, guys, this is just him, just him. It's a rare oddity. Like, it's just not against the system. But I think even everyone in that case in the country knew this was about the system at the end. No matter how they try to lessen the impact of this trial, they know, like, this is going to be what I hope is the beginning of the end of abuse, you know, so for me, the reason, I guess that's also part of the reason why I wasn't all yay, like, you know, he was convicted is because like, okay, we're just starting with, this is just the beginning, like this is the right direction. But as many articles I've read, this was a rarity. This doesn't really happen. And the point to like, yeah, like ever, like before I even switched into law, I was actually a criminal justice major. And one thing they taught us was that, you know, that brotherhood that you have in the police academy. So to see in his case, seeing so many of his own, you know, brothers stand up against him was just so shocking. And what I genuinely, what I really am hoping is like, this gives courage to other police officers to continue to do the right things. Like when someone's stepping out of line, you should be able to stand up against them and not be punished for it. It's you're right to say that it, it never happens. I this was the first time that a white police officer in Minnesota had ever been convicted for the killing of a black person. So this it it was historic in that sense. I want to go back to I want to hear about your reaction to the reactions because, like you said, not trying to judge people that are celebrating that like there there are reasons to celebrate and be happy. Um, but some of the reactions, and I would say largely from white people were like, look, we've done it. Like, look, you know, justice is done. And there was also, and I'm sure you've heard and seen these things that, reactions that I thought were kind of ridiculous. People almost like thanking George Floyd for like laying his life down in service of the country. And mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it's hard that you don't want to stand in like stand as like the judge of how people should react to things that hit people in so many different ways. On the other hand, it, it kind of felt like a lot of people like patting themselves on the back of like, oh, look, like we've, we've changed, you know? I, so I, I'd be curious, like, as you sat back and try to process the reactions that you saw, what were your thoughts on all of that? Um, honestly, it was, it's just, I just, I expected it to be honest. It's typical, like um, whenever something good does happen, I think people are so quick to be like, everything's normal. Like, look how great everything is. Like, oh, racism is dead when it's not, you know, like, oh, we passed this bill. Like I'm thinking back to Martin Luther King, who was like, you know, such a big icon, like, and I remember in high school being taught that, and then he did this, he died and there's no more racism. We're like, then I got to college, you're like, well, that's clearly not the case. What are you talking about? So with everyone being like, thank you, George Floyd, um, 
we were kind of like, oh, it's good that he died because now we realize our problem, but it's like, he didn't have to die for you to realize it. You, people aren't listening to minorities who are constantly talking, who are constantly going through it every single day. Um, and so to see people celebrate it and be like, you know, we're done, we've cleaned up, like we've done a major thing is an insult, to be honest. It really is. Cause it's like, oh, we've cleaned it up. Just last week, how many minorities were, or forget it, people were killed by the police. We did a good job. People died all last week. This isn't a one person problem. It's a system problem. I remember talking to a really good friend of mine who was saying, how are we as a country okay with the constant excuse bringing up of, oh, they were scared. Oh, they were nervous. Oh, like you're handling a very dangerous weapon. You're in a very dangerous line of work. How is it acceptable for us to, you know, accept the excuse that you were scared in the moment. You thought they had a weapon. You thought whatever. So it's okay for you to kill them. No. For me, no, I expect way better from a country. I expect way better from people who are essentially who did sign up for the dangerous line of work. Obviously it's tragic, you know, recognizing that there's police tragedy. Obviously it's tragic when um, those who serve us die in a line of work, but just like a firefighter going into a burning building, you know what's coming. You know the dangers, you know the risk. You don't get to be negligent. You should not be allowed to be negligent in that line of work. Like there's some ex exceptions, sure, but constantly, every week, every day, every, like, I don't know, to me, I don't think so. So to everyone else, I wanna tell them, don't lose sight of the goal here. For me personally, I am for reallocating police funds. Just as last summer with the whole horror and how you had the country re like, you know, re like passing new bills, passing new acts, like saying that they're going to make change. That same summer when Massachusetts passed that act of we're gonna hold police accountable, my own hometown that I'm not going to disclose, my own hometown literally cut school funding, shut down three schools and gave the police force a million dollar more. For what reason? I, I personally don't understand how people are willing to accept bare minimum when really we should be enraged a lot more, at least that's what I think. Yeah, and it's it's hard, and you alluded to it, but I think I read somewhere that since the end of the the Chauvin verdict, there's been an average of three people killed by police every day, and we've seen a, a few of those cases, maybe most publicly. Um, Ricky, you alluded to Dante Wright, and uh, Salome, I think you were talking about Makia Bryant and um, mm -hmm. Adam Toledo in Chicago. Th that video, yeah, that happened at the end of March. That killing happened at the end of March, and we, that video came out in recent weeks, and. That's that's been hard, I think, to try to reconcile those things where you you do want to celebrate progress because the Chauvin verdict was a sign of progress. Any time justice is done for the first time, yeah, there's celebration there. But contrasting that with you know at least three three more deaths every day, three three deaths of you know young people that are under 20 years old, uh, it it feels it, it justice feels like a little hollow in that sense. Yeah, because it's not justice, it's accountability, you know, as I'm sure you guys have seen the cool costly, this is not yeah. justice, this is accountability. Justice, like the bare minimum that you expect. Literally, and not even the bare minimum, at this point, we're below it, like, yeah, someone committed murder, 
yes, they were working. Yes, they were like in a position that sure might have like waived some rights, but not completely. Someone should not lose their life and have it be the norm. It should not be normal that in our country, the people that we call for help, like Makia, who just passed, who calls for help, then gets killed by the same people who are supposed to protect us. Um, it honestly just blows my mind, but I do wanna say with this case coming to a close like, and the verdict that came out, I think this as a country, we need to apply more pressure, make this the norm. Like, hey, if you mess up, we're not going to accept you killing our citizens. Cause I feel like one thing that this um, society loves to do is try to separate. We're definitely in a new, I remember a, I don't know if it was on CNN or one of our professors who actually said it. We're definitely in an age where people don't want to be held accountable for anything, nothing at all. Like it's not our fault for why things are way, the way it is. It's why people are so quick to victim blame. Well, maybe if they did X, Y, and Z, maybe if they did da, 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 da. No. Like you don't get, we have a criminal justice system. Someone does wrong. You know, you go through the, due process and all that jazz and then you get your punishment you know if you're found like you deserve punishment so you don't get to make rash decisions of whether or not someone deserves to live and I think that's what was so haunting to me about the Chauvin the George Floyd situation was just seeing him not care like oh I made a decision um yes it was manslaughter but if there was a, for me personally I don't know there's like a certain cruelty to the way he did it you're not deaf. You heard, you heard people. You knew you were heard. Then come on. Everyone knows a neck, like a knee to the neck. I remember like even just wrestling my siblings. If they even stepped on my back, I was down. I was like, get off me. Like to do that, to decide to be judge, jury, and executor. No, no absolutely not. No, it's, we definitely need to have more accountability in the system. And I think we can, people, we should be okay to critique the system that we have. It does not make us un-American. I think it makes us more American. We should come more together. We're a nation of people, you know? We're supposed to be for each other. We shouldn't be quick to fight, like to accuse people of wanting to divide the land when in reality is we wanna protect our fellow Americans. And you know what? Minorities, black people, brown people, we're all, people you know we're all americans just because you may not have interacted with a certain population as often doesn't mean that they don't exist you know yeah i mean that's really beautifully said and before you came on you were telling ricky and i about uh this like set of cards that you found can you talk a little bit about that because i think that goes to your point of like look that there's all the commonalities between us yeah, so there's actually a card game called We're Not Really Stranger. And in its initial concept, it created a deck of cards that uh, wanted to promote just better communications among strangers. And they asked like these random deep questions that you might be afraid to talk to your friends and family about, but it might be easier to talk to a stranger. Um, and they released a deck called the Race and Privilege deck that asked them pretty hard but fair questions about um, your biases, your internal biases. And it's not a, a game of attack. I think it, like, it makes all people really reassess themselves, you know? 
Do you guys yeah. want to ask a question from the game? <laughs> I feel like you want to at this point. A little bit. No. I'll ask the easier right, let's question. Do let's do it. Okay. So, oh my gosh. Let me see. Let me be nice. I'll be a little nice. Okay. So here's a, an example. So in your day-to-day -day life, how often do you think about race and the color of your own skin? And why do you think that is? Rick, you want me to go first? Sure. <laughs> Age before beauty, right? I mean, for a few, I'm three weeks older than him. <laughs> I, I would say the only times I'm ever thinking about my skin color, skin color in relation to other people is uh, in, in like an academic sense, really. And, uh, you know, whether it's in class or in like philosophical discussions with, you know, Ricky Say You or with other friends of ours, but there's no time throughout the day, throughout most of my days, I would say, uh, that I'm thinking of the color of my skin in, in my day-to-day -day situations when I'm walking through the common or, you know, sitting at, you know, in the cafeteria or, in class or walking home, there's very little times when I have to think about the color of my skin. It's, I would say it's more of an exercise when I have to force myself to think about the color of my skin in relation to, you know, other people and their experiences. Yeah, I, uh, I, th I think where I've gotten to now in my life is definitely different than, than how I grew up. As a teenager, it was every single day, every room that I walk into, First thing is like, you do the scan. Am I the only person in here who's not white? <laughs> Gen I mean, you know, this in Boston, like typically you are, if you're, if you're not in sort of your own, like ethnic community. And as soon as you step out into like the rest of the city, if you go to a bar, if you go to uh, Fenway park, doesn't matter where you go, typically, you know, you you'll scan around and you're, you're going to be the only non-white person there. Um, and then it's like, it's, it is very, uh, something that I was very self-conscious of growing up, um, at, so I'm, my background is Indian. My parents are from, from India first generation, or so I'm a first generation American, but they emigrated here in the seventies. Um, and it was, you know, not necessarily hard for me growing up. I, I don't think I ever experienced the type of racism that was, you know, as explicit um, as people in the black community face here, even in a, you know, whatever the quote unquote liberal bastion that is Massachusetts or Boston. Um, but it's still, you know, you just can't, you can't escape this. It's so visceral with your eyes that you can see how different you are. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll even be fair to answer the question myself. Yeah. Um, being a black woman actually it's like it's not just me thinking about black it's mm -hmm. i'm also a woman that deal with both identities every single day um but the most prevalent is like what brandon was saying is in an academic setting when you go in and you're like oh my gosh who all right how many people here look like me um obviously law school was a shock where i was like okay all right you know i gotta i feel this weird pressure that i have to be the idea model like the hey yeah, exactly. Um, when, hopefully when we meet in the fall, you'll know I am a very sociable person. I am very loud and I love laughing. I, I, <laughs> I definitely have a presence, but I don't want people to look at me being like, oh, there she is. You know, the stereotypical, just so in your face, in your space, like, no, you know, 
um, don't make presumptions about me. Like one, I love hockey and a lot of people yeah. are very surprised. <laughs> uh, two, ooh, hopefully people don't judge me too much. I'm a big nerd. No, yeah, I'm a big nerd. I do. I play D&D with my friends. Like it's, these are things that are about me, but I'm also in touch with my own community at the same time. You know, like there's layers to me and there's layers to everyone. For me personally, I don't, I'm aware, yes, of the racial of the racial disparities that exist in this country. I'm aware that there are a lot of people, rightfully so, very angry. For me, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt. You like, but it's not like multiple chance. Like you have to mess up big for me to be like, okay, I really cannot be in your space, you know? Um, I'm trying like, to like we had a classmate who I generally thought was a certain way. I'm like, oh, they're not gonna like me. I'm gonna stay away from them. But I get once I got to know him, I was like, oh, you know, that's on me for presuming. But they made their own presumption about me, and we had a really good conversation about you know prejudgment because of the society that we grow up in. And I really, I have to say, I really do like this class of law students that I'm going to school with, because I feel like there's such an awareness. People are so dedicated to doing justice and moral rights um, and correcting the wrongs of our past. And while I'm obviously, there's a big work to do, I think it's okay for people to have hope for a better world. And certainly with the Chauvin case, as I had said in class, I think it I want to believe it's going to inspire change, genuine, real change of accountability and what it means to come together as a nation. That's maybe a nice place to end. Is there anything else like you, you've mentioned reallocating some police funds, maybe that this the, the Chauvin verdict will give people, uh, particularly people in law enforcement, the, the courage to, you know, to be able to stand up when they see wrongs happening within their own you know brotherhood and sisterhood um are there other things that you think about that you that give you hope that you you or things maybe you're not seeing that you you hope to see personally like societally or in the criminal justice system or any of that i'm hoping people get more involved in politics to be honest and not just the big presidential one our local governments they affect us personally every single day whether we're aware of it or not so that's what my hope is i hope People get more involved in government. I hope our government dedicates more to our education um, factors and uh, our health. Oh my gosh, our health sectors, especially as we know with COVID, like we need them. So I'm not against the police. I do think they play a really big, important part. However, I do think there are way more important parts of our society that need the resources that the police has, so. And it's all connected, right? It's not like when you Great. invest in education that you're not also potentially lowering crime and making it, the police force less necessary. These things are, um, it's always so interesting to hear about people talk about these things in, in the vacuum, but we know that they're all, that they're all, um, they're all interrelated. I, I guess, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about, I don't know if you've, you know, thought a ton about this and I, I've, struggled with this a lot is all right let's say we do get our wish and and start to you know tamp like do some demilitarization of the police force let's remove some of that budget and reallocate it what do you think are 
sort of the priority areas um, or, you know, where, what would you like to see um, as kind of that first, first phase of investment in something different in a different strategy? I think the first phase of investment is for sure education. Like you, um, Ricky, I am a first generation American. My parents came from the Congo. So um, particularly during a very difficult time in that country too. So education has got me this far. It has given me great opportunities. And I was very blessed and fortunate to go to school in a community where that wasn't over-policed that had a community that generally care about them. So I feel like the first phase should be education to let people know there is another way to life, you know? Yeah, love that. Couldn't, couldn't agree more here. You're preachy. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying not to get so preachy. No, it's great. Um, all right, Salome, thank you for, for joining us and for being so real and honest with all of your thoughts and, um, you know, this was good for me and I think it'll hopefully be good for, for everyone that listens. No, and thank you for having me and being willing to have this conversation. Um, the guys, honestly, what your podcast is doing is pretty great. So definitely keep it up. Well, I hope this is the first of a couple of conversations. Really, really great, great having you. I like that. First of many. <laughs> yeah, no, whenever you guys... There are more more cards in that deck, I imagine. <laughs> there are. You want me to send it to you? Oh, there's quite a few. I'm just trying to be nice, but yeah, no, I'll send it to you guys. Cool. cool. All right. Thank you, Salome. I appreciate it. Bye. Take care. And so that was Salome Cassini. We couldn't be more grateful for um, her joining us today and, and giving us her, her thoughts and perspective um, on police violence in, in the United States. Now X again. Oops, accident, it's nasty when You set us up, then roll a dice, then bet us up You overnight, the big rifles, then tell Fox to be scared of us Gang members or terrorists, etc, etc America's reflections of me, that's what America does We are now very excited to welcome to the program another classmate of mine, Rocco Alexis um, So uh, currently a law student, but a former uh, police officer and police detective out in Arizona, which where he still lives, um, given the current COVID pandemic. So he's been taking classes online. So I've only known Rocco through the screen, but really excited for your, uh, you to join us today, Rocco, and to give us your perspective as a former law enforcement officer on a lot of what we've seen over this past month. Hey, thanks guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's great talking to you guys. Yeah, welcome. Cool. All right. Yeah, so I want to hop in with just a little bit of background about yourself. What made you decide to get into law enforcement originally? So um, my family and I moved to the United States. Uh, I was born in Bosnia, um, and then we moved uh, to Germany. I lived in Germany for five years, went first through third grade in Germany. And then we uh, applied originally to go to uh, Australia, who has like a better social program as far for support with immigrants. Um, we missed the cutoff. We got selected for the U.S. And my parents said anywhere where there's no hurricanes or tornadoes. So they gave us Phoenix, Arizona. So that's how I ended up in Phoenix. Um, All right. You know, and uh, that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we moved to the Phoenix in 99. Um, originally, we lived in a pretty 
rough part of Phoenix um, in uh, government subsidized housing. And then we moved out to a more rural part of uh, like, it was basically just cotton fields, essentially. And I was the only thing close to me where, you know, my classmates were mostly Mormon kids, you know, that had worked as like farm kids. So um, the reason why uh, originally my, I wanted to be a police officer was, you know, um, I felt like America gave me so much, like for the first time in my life, I had stability and we, you know, we had come from a war zone. We had, there was a civil war in Bosnia. And so there was a great sense of duty and patriotism. And so um, I wanted to do that. And so I put myself through the academy. This was uh, in 2011. Nobody was really hiring because of the, you know, the economy at the time. So there were a lot of hiring freezes, but they were hiring laterals. And a lateral is a police officer that had gone through the uh, academy, but was already um, because Police departments here in Arizona, the way it works is they will select uh, recruits. And from the time somebody is a civilian, just applicant, to the time they just hit the road, roughly costs about $100,000 to get them through the whole process, be it behind like a background check, you got to do a lie detector test here in Arizona and Massachusetts it's a little different. You don't actually have to do a, a polygraph test, I believe. Um, and then you go into you do a physical screening, psychological screening, and then you go do a academy and then you become a police officer. So I pulled myself voluntarily through that and I paid for it, which was uh, I didn't I didn't it was. I, put, I paid for the polygraph and everything like that. Um, and I went through the academy. I paid for that and uh, through a local community college. And then I was certified. And then I got hired on um, by the Tempe Police Department here in Arizona. So and then I got hired in December of 2012. And I did I was a patrolman for uh, seven years in that time when I was assigned to patrol, I was, I became a member of the Arizona Gang Investigators Association, and I was a gang liaison officer, um, for the department, which works on, you know, they work with the, uh, gang detectives on identifying, um, uh, gang members and documenting them and investigating gang crimes. And then I was also a narcotics enforcement liaison officer for the city of Tempe in patrol, and, uh, they get, narcotics complaints and in, uh, investigate those. And uh, then I went to detectives. I was a night slash domestic violence detective for about a, a year and a half. So, but it's a pretty diverse range of experiences you got. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, you know, definitely a different, I come from a little bit of a different than you're saying. A lot of my classmates were, didn't have a whole lot of life experience. They may be like, you know, um, just a, kid that was uh, like a a Mormon here there's a ton of Mormons in Arizona but so like a Mormon kid that ended up going on a mission somewhere and then coming back and then joining law enforcement and a lot of those guys are legacies which means uh that their father or grandfather was a police officer and then now you know they're joining I was kind of like flying blind nobody <laughs> nobody was there to kind of I was just navigating it myself so so what was your experience like if you had to categorize it? And I, I'm, that's probably not easy to do, but looking back on those eight, nine years that you spent in, in law enforcement and the you know, variety of experience that you had, like how would you characterize your experience in law enforcement? I thought it was, you know, 
I thought it was the best job ever. I really enjoyed I I liked helping people. I felt like I was helping people. There were numerous instances where I feel like I was serving the community and helping others. And it was really rewarding, um, especially like, you know, uh, helping young kids or helping, uh, I was a domestic violence detective. So helping victims of domestic violence um, and then getting working nights, you kind of uh, get a, a mix of all kinds of things that can come by. So helping victims was really, really rewarding. So it was, it was good. Nice. As That's awesome. So I'll, I'll, go ahead, Ricky. Well, sorry. As a detective, does that mean that you were mostly um, sort of following up on incidents kind of after the fact? Or uh, were there times where you were sort of called to the scene of like an ongoing Situation. That's a great question. So um, you are assigned, and uh, if you ever hear like you're when you're a detective, you're case carrying. What that means is you're assigned. So a patrolman will go out and they will um, take a police report, and then it'll be um, that report. If there's any, it'll get screened by a a supervisor, and then first it'll get screened by a patrol supervisor. And then after that, it'll be screened by a detective supervisor. So essentially, you know, all of these reports um, are out there and then it'll get whittled down to the cases where you have a, the victim is cooperative and wants to aid in prosecution. Um, That's a factor. And then also, you know, is there anything that we can follow up on? If it's a as an example, a bike theft where there's no follow-up, you have no idea, then most likely they're just going to say, hey, we're going to set this case aside because we have nothing at this point that a detective can do to follow up on that case. It's a a guy left a bicycle unlocked and it got stolen from his front yard. There's not a whole lot we can do with that. So once it kind of goes through the a finer and finer mesh of kind of then I get assigned a case. And then at the time our unit was we were all really motivated. And so we had our radios on. And so we would just be working in the office and hear something, a patrol call come out and say, hey, we can we can be an asset to these patrol guys. Let's jump in and have, because they don't have maybe the expertise of writing search warrants or following up on a phone or doing some more um, investigative techniques that we will employ. Or maybe, you know, the guy left the city of Tempe and they don't know where he's at or he's somewhere else and we can follow up on that uh, immediately. So sometimes, especially with like a robbery, um, a robbery, you know, times of the essence, people after, after they leave, bad guys are getting rid of guns. They're, you know, maybe if it's a, if, uh, there's other evidence. They may be getting rid of that. They're changing clothing. They're trying to, if they're, if they stole something, they're trying to fence that property and sell it. So um, if you work really fast, you can get a lot of that evidence and you can put together a really good case. So sometimes time is of the essence. Nice. Uh, what was the attitude towards law enforcement and, and the police force in the, the Tempe area? And did did you sense uh, like an attitude change over the course of like your time in law enforcement or was it consistent? I, I'm curious, like you're out there, you know, doing good and feeling like you're doing good. Did you feel like people view you as doing good? So I've, I, I've heard from guys that were before me um, that post nine, uh, 
9-11, after the terrorist attacks, basically law enforcement was walking on water. Like you could do no wrong. Um, there was like, everybody was super pro police, uh, super pro fire. People were bringing like cookies and everything. When I was there um, with the Tempe Police Department, it was good. There was no issues. There was no, I know that there's, I, I've talked to a guy uh, that came over from uh, the Portland, Oregon Police Department. He, he had transferred. Um, and there's a lot of friction between, you know, that community and their law enforcement. But for the most part, Tempe, uh, I would say the citizens of Tempe have a good relationship um, you know, it would be very rare, even um, towards the end um, of after the, you know, um, George Floyd and uh, death for in Tempe for people just to, you know, be negative derogatory towards police. You, you would get somebody like randomly, but it, for the most part, they understand like there's a there's a difference you know, from what we're doing here to what is maybe going on in other parts of the country. All right. So let, let's talk about that. You, you bring up the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin uh, incident murder. Uh, as you were watching that, because at the time, you're probably wrapping up your time in law enforcement and have almost a decade under your belt and dealing you know, in, in situations like this. What are your thoughts when, when you see that video um, with Officer Chauvin? Oh, I was so disappointed. It was terrible. It was the it was it was really disappointing that he would that that happened to him, you know, um, especially, you know, uh, coming from a law enforcement perspective, the people that hate bad cops the most is good cops and people that want to if you're in it for the right reasons, you don't want that guy. You don't want him to be around and, you know, um, cause it, it's completely unnecessary. And uh, I don't. I've talked to other police officers, you know, um, nobody is saying, hey, that was the correct way of doing things like that is in in any academy here in Arizona, you are not taught to kneel on anybody's neck ever like that is 100% uh, the wrong way of doing things. Um, I will say so. I know that on the East Coast, they are taught a different police departments de de teach defensive tactics is what this falls into. So defensive tactics are basically uh, how you deal with uh, non-compliant people. Uh, so there, and it falls down into two categories. You have passive resistance and you have act what's called active aggression. So passive is like, for example, I'm not, I am turtled up on the ground and I'm not going to give you my hands as opposed to active aggression where someone's looking to punch you or harm you and the how you can respond between those th those two um, uh, scenarios is is vastly different for a guy that's not wanting to give you his hands you're not going to start punching that guy in the face or if he's only turtling up on the ground. Um, and again, I will caveat this with saying, this is how we were taught here in Arizona. Um, I, and I can only speak, we take a lot of the instruction here in Arizona from California because it's a larger agency. And so 
California, Arizona, uh, Colorado, um, New Mexico, kind of Utah, all kind of share I found in talking to officers at conferences and how we handle similar defensive tactics measures. Now, there may be a little bit of variance between different departments, but the East uh, slash South, or I'm sorry, the Southwest um, slash West Coast has a lot of the similar um, tactics when it comes to that. And we're not taught the side uh, what what is being employed here? I believe what he was doing was be called a like a side uh, neck knee technique, which is uh, was originally developed by the um, uh, Israeli army, and it's a the the thought process behind this technique is, and it's similar to any grappling art where it, where the head goes, the body will follow, and so if you you're supposed to put a knee on the side of the neck and that will potentially and if i'm getting some of if your listenership if i'm getting some of this wrong this is just a, a rudimentary understanding we were not taught this technique um so from this is from talking to some guys that uh from some defensive tactics instructors that had kind of cross gotten some cross-pollination mm -hmm. training and have been have been taught this, their understanding is that you kneel on the side, you still have your airway open and it's kind of to control somebody's movements. Um, so that, that's had some incredible insight, something that I think, you know, a, a layman would really never, never get to that level of, uh, to that depth, which is, which is great that you're able to share that. I think one of the things that you said um, about, you know, the, the biggest nightmare for good cops are, are bad cops is, is something that I've been reflecting on. I think this particular trial, there were, you know, a number of different police officers that came out and really testified saying that like, he wasn't doing anything that followed police protocol. This is not how we're taught to deal with these situations, nor, you know, would we recommend that anybody try and deal with it this way. Um, I, I think about that in sort of the context of like the idea of like the blue wall that, you know, it's, it's not right for any police officer to question another police officer's like intentions or, you know, how they dealt with something. Um, and I'm wondering if one, if, if there was something very specific about this case that made it different than, you know, we, we've had a number of cases like this over the past, uh, you know, <laughs> Over since the advent of policing, potentially in the United States, you know. So, what, what, if anything, are you seeing sort of shift in that um, in that line of thinking? Uh, as far as holding uh, bad police officers more accountable for their actions, yeah, and so, then how that happens, you know, within the police force itself, not just like society now deciding, you know, sure. what's the right and wrong thing for police officers to do. Absolutely. So. Uh, a number there have been a number of things that have kind of been implemented um and so now uh academies in the state of arizona and this has been going on for i want to say like the last five years maybe even longer than that um but basically uh when a one of the scenarios that uh, recruits are put through are is a bad police officer so they'll have an actor or actress uh, placed handcuffed and placed in the back seat of a car, and then a, uh, they'll have an uh, a police officer that's acting like a, a bad police officer, and he'll 
pepper spray that uh, um, the the girl, the actress is being mouthy. And so he'll pepper spray her, which is not 100% not correct. You can't use force. Basically, you can be, and I've this has happened to me numerous times, where you're involved in a situation with a guy that is actively fighting you. He's trying to punch you. And but once the handcuffs goes on, go, go on. And once, you know, he's subdued, it's over like that is. And not only is it over, but he is now you have to care for that person. He is your responsibility. If somebody were to come up and try to assault him or, uh, you know, it's your responsibility because he's helpless. He is handcuffed. And so you need to make sure that that person is taken care of. When you put him in the back seat of your car, you have to make sure that you're driving reasonably, that he's uh, seatbelted in. You know, you don't want anything bad to happen to him because he's defenseless. He's depending on you in order to make sure that he's properly um, cared for. Um, now, uh, in, in the scenario, this rogue police officer uh, will pepper spray this person. And now the recruit is presented with this and they're saying, what do you do? What, how do you handle that? And so from the beginning, they're teaching these officers like, hey, if you see, you see that this is incorrect, you need to stop him from doing that to the person. You need to get the medical attention and you need to report it to your supervisor and make sure that these uh, that that is not tolerated. So from the beginning, um, and then now it's a lot more difficult, you know, it, I mean, to do anything. I mean, I had with body cameras, body cameras, there's pros and cons to body cameras. Um, but with body cameras, even then, and then even before body cams, there was, if you wanted to do anything, there was uh, not, there were a bunch of officers. Usually I lived in, a, I worked in a very uh, urban environment. So if you're rural, it, this is going to be a little bit different, but in an urban environment, generally there's a ton of a supervisor, a ton of other officers. You're uh, when you put them in the backseat, you know, they measure your car has GPS. They measure how far from one spot to the, to the jail is. You have to type in or back in the day before there was, uh, you could do it on the computer. You would have to put it on the radio like, hey, my starting mileage is this. I am going to that because, you know, um, in order to make sure that there's no diversions or that the officer, that the prisoner is transported from the scene straight over to the jail. So, so I think... There's a lot of hope that in viewing the Chauvin trial, like Ricky brought up, when you have officers standing up and having the courage to testify against the fellow officer and saying that like he was way out of line here, he shouldn't have handled it like this. I think there's a lot of hope that that signals maybe a little bit of a changing of the guard, a crack in the in the quote unquote blue wall in, in a good way. Uh, so would you say given like the training that you've seen recruits go under like the previous five years. Do you think this is an example of, you know, what you hope to see more of going for? Like my question is really, do you think there's like a new generation of police officers who are more aware of uh, like rogue officers and feel like those officers should be held accountable? Whereas in the past, it seems like there was a far more, uh, you know, willingness to protect these rogue officers. So I will say it's a little bit, Again, in Arizona, it's a little bit different. Here in Arizona, uh, we don't have 
um, we have police associations. Uh, we don't have police unions. So really, um, because it's a right to work state. So letting somebody go or firing them is a, a lot easier in a, in a right to work state than it is. So uh, if, if a guy is messing up or doing something uh, wrong, to give you an example, there was an officer uh, before I, I showed up at the police department that was a, uh, a veteran and he was a Marine Corps veteran. And uh, he, would, he didn't do anything essentially wrong as far as like towards a prisoner, but he would do some weird stuff. Like he would take his uh, urine breaks at the strip club. So anytime he had to go to the bathroom, he would go to the strip club and go to the bathroom because he thought that that was the best place to do it. So he, uh, he ended up going there and they counseled them. They're like, Hey, you know, you can't be going to the strip club to use the bathroom. Um, and so that's, you know, there's plenty of gas stations out there. You, you don't need to do that. Um, and, uh, after being counseled a few times, he ended up, uh, getting, you know, uh, fired, but so, um, that'll, you know, that I think that here in Arizona, as far as I can say, it's it's tough to uh, it's a lot easier, I would say, to to get rid of somebody, a problem employee, as opposed to like uh, I've heard, for example, NYPD is it's very difficult to get fired from from the police department. So, um, well, that that's really interesting because a, a huge criticism is of police unions is that their job is to protect their members at all costs and right that's really a job of any union and it's hard to fault unions for doing their jobs and pr protecting each and every one of their members like that's that's the their purpose but when you do that you're not only protecting the the 99% of your members or whatever that are good but you're protecting the bad ones too so i'd be curious from your perspective having not been part of a police union and it's funny that they're not quite the same, but when I was teaching, I was also not part of a teacher's union. And I, I found that personally is my preference, but like, do you think that that's a better way to go about it? Like Arizona's model of police associations versus police unions? You know, I, I can't say because I have, I've never been part of a, a union, never experienced that. What I will say is that I've talked to, so one of my, um, really good friends is from, uh, worked, it was part of a union and was a rep, uh, union representative um, in Pennsylvania. And then he moved here to Arizona and continued his law enforcement career here. He's has a lot of contacts in Pennsylvania and throughout the Northeast. And he's saying that even that now uh, the unions are, are changing that, hey, look, we recognize that, you know, we don't, want, uh, you know, these guys are giving us a bad name and where um, there's a less of a willingness to to basically just say, hey, let's get this guy out of here. He is not um, in where in the past and maybe let's hide this guy and have him ride the pine. Let's hide him in the back where, you know, he won't be in contact with uh, like a um, with the public. He could be maybe doing administrative stuff. Um, where now they're kind of saying, you know, this is not the type of individual we want to be have part of our organization. So, yeah, I mean, 
that would be that would be I think beneficial for everyone if if that trend continued. Absolutely. And uh, you know, law enforcement stuff, it's not for everybody. You know, it's definitely not. And it's not for everybody. You know, it may be, it may start off as being the correct uh you, you think, you know, working it, but then um people change and you know it can be where you need to get out at that point because you're not serving the community properly, you're not serving um, your uh, fellow officers, you're a liability, not only you, to everyone, not only to yourself, but also the community. So um, you need to recognize that. And then we also need to recognize that, hey, for, I'm saying from a law enforcement perspective, can we fix this guy? Is it something where this guy is just so burned out and there's no, you know, f- for example, the mental health wise, um, it was really, and this I can say from talking, I have a lot of military friends because there's a lot of cross-pollination from military to law enforcement. It was really taboo to talk about mental health. And you're almost, if you say, hey, I'm struggling with something mental health-wise, uh, that was uh, something that was kind of shunned and, you know, every, no, you know, men don't cry and you got to be tough. But if you're put into dynamic situations on a daily basis, it's because uh, you're it, it literally goes from, hey, I'm sitting and typing up a, a police report, getting caught up on paper to shots fired. I got to be there and you got to flip that switch and you're doing that and there's an adrenaline dump and then you go back to I'm writing a paper and you do that multiple times per night. So you go from zero to 100 to zero to 100 and you do. I did a majority of my career on nights. I worked I because I was even at, you know, six, seven years, I was still uh, for the schedule I wanted, I I wasn't able to get a, a daytime. So you're having to work on nights is incredibly taxing on your body. So, you know, having guys now be able to talk to a counselor or, you know, decompress, that is becoming recognized and more prevalent. But then again, it goes to budgeting. A lot of uh, departments don't have the budget to do that. And, you know, so there's some give and take. Well, yeah, it's interesting to think about that in all of the conversations and the push for like defunding the police or reallocating some officer money. And uh, there's certainly, I would argue, parts of police budgets, not all budgets, but many of their budgets that could be reduced um, and demilitarized in some ways. But it's, it's a fair point that you bring up whereas like in some ways, police maybe need to you know, reallocate their budgets within, within themselves, you know? Uh, oh. Yeah. All right. I want to run through three specific examples of uh, police officer violence that have resulted in the tragic deaths of three individuals. But before I get into those, some of the rhetoric I've seen and heard over the past month uh, from like the police law enforcement side of things is that, look, almost like that, like a few good. Have you seen a few good men? Uh, No, pop culture is completely lost on me because I'm a foreigner. So you can't, you know, you start throwing stuff like, you know, a few good men and, you know, I... It just goes over my head. (laughs) All right. Well, here's a plug for you to watch it. It's a great movie. But anyway, Jack Nicholson at the end of it, he's he's yelling at Tom Cruise, who and I, he's a, a, you know, in the Marines, and Tom Cruise is just a lawyer. Ricky, do you have a comment here? Oh no, I was just gonna say that you can't handle the truth. Yes, it's that speech. 
So in that speech, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, he says, look, you know, you, I'm not going to sit here and be lectured to by someone who like rises and, and sleeps under the blanket of freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. it like, I would rather you pick up a weapon and stand a post as opposed to sit here and criticize me. Like, how dare you? And I've seen a little bit of that attitude coming from some corners of law enforcement over the past month being like, look at all you armchair quarterbacks sitting there criticizing these officers who are in these life and death situations. And so my question to you as a former law enforcement officer is that is that fair to say that like look all you people that have never been in these situations you can't judge a police officer in those situations or do you think it is fair to hold police officers you know that that we should be able to as a public who has admittedly never been in those situations to still hold them to high standards and scrutinize their actions in these high pressure situations i think that uh you know seeing um a lot of these you know, videos that are uh, of police interactions. I think that the police departments do uh, a, a, not a good job of essentially um, public relations. I don't know if people are, I think that, you know, explaining why we do certain things, I know that there's gonna be a percentage of the populace that does not want to hear why certain things are the way they are or why certain actions were taken or, but, explaining, hey, this is taking the time to explain, this is why, as an example, um, chasing somebody, let's just say somebody runs, uh, you're involved in a, in a interaction and somebody takes off running. Okay, well, you're not just worried about running after that guy, you're worried about a where are you? putting it out on the on the radio because you're you're wanting to get other people there in order to help you um, in case because people generally that run don't want to be caught so at the end of that confrontation it's not going to be sometimes it is sometimes people just surrender you know where they get on the ground and they and they surrender um but a lot of times you there's going to be a situation where you have to push them and then you end up wrestling on the ground and so you want to have somebody else there um and they if the person you know which direction are you going calling out the names of the streets, telling the other officers, you know, there's no, we used to joke around, but we, you know, when a junior officer, like a, a guy that's super green chases somebody and you get on the radio and you're like, hey, why are you chasing that guy? Uh, and they're like, uh, I don't know. That's called felony running. It's not a thing. It's a completely, you know, like they, they're just, they're like a dog. You just see a ball and you chase it. You have to have a reason why you're chasing somebody. Um, so explaining, telling the other officers why you're chasing them. And then when, if they jump fences, you don't want to jump a fence right after a guy, because if you're jump a fence right after a guy, he, there's been scenarios where he's waiting on the other side of the fence and then he ambushes you. So you have to go and maybe offset 10 feet to the right or left peek over and then jump the fence. And then, so you're, or if he runs around the corner, you don't wanna be blindly running around corners, but again, because you could be ambushed. Um, so, you know, you wanna take a wide berth around that corner and essentially pie, what's called pieing the corner and to make sure that you're uh, not running into an ambush. So a lot of those things go into um, 
just chasing a person, just a run of the mill. I, I don't like it. It can be a dynamic situation, but just a run of the mill, like you're should have, maybe the guy has a warrant and you need to apprehend him and you just chasing a guy. A lot of these things go into it. Um, you contacting somebody in a vehicle, you know, the police departments, I believe can do a much better job of explaining how this uh, and uh, of this situation can be uh, uh, explained as far as how you contacted them, why you contacted them, what led up to it. Now, what makes it difficult is um, people want to see the body cam and, I, and that's fine. The body cam is a limited view. It's a great tool, but it doesn't always tell all of the story as far as what happened. And police departments also don't want to put out, you know, if you if there's an investigation going on, um, you don't want to essentially say everything to the media right away. Uh, too. So it, it can have explaining it, one thing, but then it's difficult to explain it because you also want to preserve the integrity of the investigation. And because you're, you're investigating this dynamic situation that unfolded. Yeah. So let's talk. One of the videos that we got, um, a body cam video, was the shooting of um, a boy, Adam Toledo, who was a 13 year old in Chicago. And if people haven't seen this video, we got a you could argue that this is, you know, all the pros and cons that Rocco has said with the body cam is we, we see the police officer. He gets out of his car. He is chasing down a dark alley. Uh, he's obviously been called in because the re reports of, uh, you know, individuals sh shots fired, individual with a gun. So the officer is, is chasing um, Adam Toledo. Uh, Adam Toledo turns around. Uh, he's, a, he's against the fence. He, he looks like he has, you know, thrown his gun aside. The, gun was discovered at the scene after and the officer shoots him in my opinion very quickly and so for me watching this video um, you know it's tragic that it was in this situation I uh, obviously the officer at the time does not know this is a 13 year old boy right he's he's reporting to the scene because he's heard you know of someone with gunshots he's running after a, you know someone an individual that has a gun um, but it looks like, and I know this is taken slightly out of context, you know, we had a still frame of it and Adam Toledo's turned around. It looks like he's kind of got his hands up and nothing in it. And the police officer fires shots and kills him. So Rocco, I'd be I'm really curious in, in a situation like this, do you empathize with the officer and in, in what he did there? And if so, why? Or do you think the officer was wrong in doing what he did? And, and if so, why? So I've chased in Arizona, there's a, a lot of people have guns. There's a, a Arizona is a very uh, gun friendly state. Um, you can carry concealed without a permit in, in the state of Arizona. You don't have to register guns. And a lot of people um, interact uh, with, I've had many interactions with people of all walks of life have that have been in possession of firearms. And because I think we deal with it so frequently, um, you're kind of conditioned, I mean, to, uh, it's not that big of a deal because you're dealing with people that have uh, firearms in their possession, both upstanding citizens and people that are involved in criminal activity, all people from all walks of life have, have firearms. Um, in this, I've chased people with that have been in possession of firearms. 
What's difficult is when you're running after somebody with a gun and he's not putting the gun down, if you're chasing him, it's easy for somebody when they're running, their arm comes up kind of as, as when you have a stride, if you guys can imagine, I'm trying to describe it for the viewership or the listenership. I'm, but when you have a stride and you're moving your arms, if you have a gun in your arm, it's you're perceiving, okay, this guy's running from me. But at the same time, if when his arm is kind of in a stride and back, he's kind of, he's, it's, it's essentially six inches away from pointing at me or pointing, or if he, he's turning around, is he look, is he turning to a, see where I'm at behind him, or is he turning to shoot at me? So when, when somebody's not following instructions, so all of these things, and then going back, you're doing all of the same stuff that you were doing before. You're t- updating your location on the radio they, and you're telling officers which way he's headed. You're worried about the backdrop. Is he, you know, is he running into a supermarket? Is he not running into a supermarket? Is he going to be jumping a fence? You know, is he running into a house that's a stranger's house or is it not a, so there's a lot of, it's a very dynamic situation. Um, in this case where somebody, you're going to a shots fi- fired call and then somebody's running from you um, and they're in possession of a gun or they're making furtive movement. I don't know if he saw the gun at the time, but the guy is not listening to your instructions. Um, and I think we can agree that if you're in a, in you shortly after a shooting happens and you show up in the area and a guy takes off running from you, it, you can presume that potentially he was involved in a shooting in, in the shooting incident. Um, he's making furtive movements to his waistline and digging around, um, him going to the fence and then turning around suddenly as an officer, they've done studies where they say, Hey, look, uh, it's difficult. You have your gun out and you're saying, okay, um, if he comes around, you know, you don't want to be shot at. So it, you're behind your, uh, in your mind. your mind will go through a process and it'll take a second. You may say you like, if you choose to shoot, okay. You may want to shoot, let's say one time, but your mind, okay. It's saying shoot and you make the decision to shoot. It may take two or three shots before when, by the time you tell your mind to stop from that one shot to so sometimes there's a disconnect between the mind and, and uh, when you've decided. Now, in this situation, I will say somebody digging around their waistline and then suddenly turning to face you, you know, I don't know if the officer saw that he didn't have a gun at the time. I think that he probably perceived that a gun, I don't think that he would have shot this individual had he not perceived that a, a gun had occurred. Um, there's a certain amount of things that maybe if a guy is running, you know, um, distance is your friend. I don't know if I would be directly behind him. I don't know how much time this officer has on or what, you know, creating some distance and then slowing it down. You know, if this guy gets away after shooting, he gets away, you know, but that's also from me, you know, being removed from the situation, not being there. 
sometimes it's easy to, you know, just say, hey, we're going to let this guy go. We're going to investigate the shooting and we're going to piece it together. You know, maybe we speak to an accomplice or a witness and then we're able to piece it together later. And then we can confront him in a much more controlled environment and then um, have a, a much better outcome. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems to be the more desirable alternative um, as, as opposed to the shooting killing of a kid or whatever he might have done before. Uh, it's really tragic. Uh, so I, I appreciate you pointing out a potential alternative. Whose dog is that? Is that Ricky's or Rocco's? That's my dog's. Yeah. <laughs> my ferocious Cocker Spaniels. Yeah. <laughs> Ricky empathizes. It happens all the time. <laughs> Uh, all right. I think that's that a, like a really interesting um, or maybe just a, a question. I don't know if you've thought of this much. Is there something about like the philosophy of American policing that may lead to situations unfolding kind of, you know, what as, as we saw in Chicago um, that you might not have in, in other places? And, you know, is is there anything that we should be considering? Because I think, you know, you talk about like, is it a bad apple or is there something bigger going on here? And I wonder if, if you put any thought to that or if, if, if um, yeah, and if how you're thinking about that at all when you hear these situations. You know, I think that there are organizations here that basically the culture of their invest of the organization is, um, there's a, maybe a disconnect from the community. And so that needs to be addressed. And I think that would be a leadership issue where, you know, um, getting a different perspective and getting better training um, and a, a better mindset as far as how we interact with the community. You know, with the, I can speak for our department, um, which was for the most part pretty well funded. Um, you did have time to interact with the community, but a department uh, close by uh, Phoenix, which is a much larger department, you know, they're going, I mean, I, I went to a lot of calls, but even they go to even more calls and they're not as well funded. Um, and so it's difficult to, you know, make those community uh, interactions as far as like just doing walking around talking to you know people in the neighborhood getting to know people you know uh, getting just uh, you know talking to Joe Citizen and asking them hey how's your week going you know how's your kid um, going and uh, interacting with them well that's difficult to do when you're going from basically what's called a hot tone which is a call it's literally a tone that'll come out on the radio and it'll be like a beeping noise and then that'll be followed by emergency traffic like a stabbing or and then you you'll normally go to those lights and siren so it's difficult my um uh best friend works for uh another guy from uh, bosnia he uh he works for phoenix and he goes from one hot call to the next. So the only interactions that those uh, members of the community are having is when something is going really badly in their neighborhood. And he doesn't have a lot of time to just allocate to 
saying hey and and going around the neighborhood and introducing himself and and talking and um so that that can i think that that makes a big difference in how the community interacts with you how good of a relationship um you have with the community if that they that there's trust that builds between the community and law enforcement and ultimately that leads to um less crime and you solving a greater quality because people that live in these communities they don't they want to be safe they want everything that everyone else wants they want safety they want security they want to make sure that their kids are that their you know kids are going to school and that they can go to work and that their things aren't taken um, by criminals so they they want all of those same things and uh, when you are, have a good working relationship with that community it makes a huge difference and you can solve a lot of crimes people are much more willing to talk to you interact with you and trust you when you um you know deal with with them so yeah that, that makes a lot of sense uh two more incidents that I wanted to ask you about. We can just go through these um, pretty quickly, but just to get your thoughts um, from the law enforcement side. Uh, Dante Wright, uh, who was the 20 year old who was killed at a traffic stop in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, and in that case, again, we have body cam video of it. Um, the police officer, yeah, there's a police officer who's who's speaking with Dante Wright, who gets him out of the car. There's a slight altercation. Dante Wright gets back in the car to drive away. The officer pulls out her gun and shoots him. Dante Wright drives away. The officer says, I think I shot him. And it turns out that she meant to grab her taser, accidentally grabbed her gun, shot Dante Wright. He drives up the road and, and dies. Uh, it's, it's another tragedy and it's, you might, there's part of me that feels some sympathy for the officer because like she clearly made a mistake. On the other hand, her mistake cost this man his life. And you, I can't have too much sympathy for her when, you know, she, she killed a guy. And so curious, like your perspective, you know, on, on that situation. I, I think that that I have absolutely no sympathy for her. That was completely unacceptable as from, you know, look, so tactics wise, just starting off with that pol police interaction, you pull somebody over and they have a warrant out for their arrest, be it misdemeanor, be it felony. Okay. Um, the way that I, you have, I think I counted, I saw the video. I think I counted three police officers that were there that were visible. Um, uh, basically she was, a, from my understanding is a field training officer just a little in a nutshell, when you finish the academy, you don't know anything really. I mean, you're taught certain things, but then you go and you spend four months of additional training, riding around with a police officer. Um, you go through four different phases uh, and usually they're um, with different officers. So you get four different perspectives on how things are done. Um, and then you are, and in the beginning phase, you know, they're essentially doing everything and you're just watching towards the end phase. Essentially, they're just watching you and or they're shadowing you and you're doing everything. And their job is basically just making sure that you're safe and that you're supposed you're doing everything um, that you're supposed to be doing. Um, now, when somebody is has a misdemeanor warrant 
what I would have done in that situation is say, hey, look, I would bring him back to the patrol car. I would bring him over to the passenger side. And then I would stand basically between the driver's door. Like I would stand between the car that I had stopped and that person. I would tell the person like, hey, you just have, hey, buddy, I, I'm going to have you sign a, a a warning slip and you're going to be on your way today. Um, I, I wouldn't tell them initially about the warrant in this case because people nobody wants to go to jail no nobody wants to go uh and be uh in front of a, a judge and have you know they may have interaction they have have plans for the rest of the day you know so um people get nervous and that's a natural reaction to having uh to go in front of a judge and having to be contacted by the police. I think that the I, I as a former police officer, most of my friends are police officers. I still get nervous when I get pulled over by the police. So bringing them back to the side of the car, the passenger side, now essentially they have to cover a distance uh, and you're standing between them and the car. So already, not only are you are you creating distance and you can, they have to fight through you to get into the car. Now you grab onto them. You have an officer position on each side, you grab onto them and you say, Hey, you're under arrest. You have a warrant out for your arrest. And you put them in handcuffs would be like the, the textbook way of how we were taught to, to apprehend somebody with a warrant. Now, if they're doing it right by the car creates an easy way if somebody gets nervous and doesn't want to be compliant to jump into the car and then now you're having to fight from somebody that's seated and then has something to hold on to which is the steering wheel having to pull that person out of the car and making sure that they don't drive away so just a better way of doing things would be to get them out of out and away from the car and then stand in between them and the car um if they get back into the car, I would just let them go. Yeah. You know who they are. Okay. You know who they are. You know where their house is. You know where they're going. I wouldn't even chase that person. You're chasing somebody and you're endangering other people's, uh, you're endangering other people. When you're doing a high-speed chase, it's the usually the person that's uh, that you're chasing has no regard. They don't have to worry about the public. They don't have to worry about anything. They're just trying to get away from you. You're worried about how you're driving, how they're driving, speed, traffic conditions, blocking uh, roads up ahead, blocking intersect, radioing up ahead to, to um, uh, block intersections so that if they run a red light, you know, he does, they don't T-bone a family of four or another innocent civilian. So I would say, let that guy go. You can, you can, you know, he won that day. You can, you catch him another day. You can go to his house and wait for him there. Um, if you choose to taste somebody in which for, I can speak for my, only my department, and I can say that in Mesa, this is too, which is a neighboring. And so the, the Phoenix metropolitan area, somebody tasing somebody um, that is just what I would classify as passively resisting. He's not punching them or he's trying to just drive off. 
you're create and they have a passenger when a taser hits you you don't have control over your muscles so you're completely so his he could hit the gas and then travel and impact something and then you hurt him you hurt potentially yourself you could get caught up and run over in the wheels uh, depending on how close you're standing and you can hurt the passenger who may not have anything to do with anything you know they may not even know that this person had a worn out for his rest so just letting him go is probably the best option in that scenario and then just catching him another day and um now speaking to the fact where somebody gets a gun and a taser mixed up that is unexcusable um there's no time I don't even know of any officer that that I've interacted with over the last eight years or that I've heard from another department that has gotten um, their taser and their gun mixed up for, for the fact, here are the facts. So a gun weighs significantly more than a taser. It's a different shape. I mean, it's a, generally it's the same shape, but in, in your hand, it's, it feels vastly different from like a, a Glock or a Smith & Wesson MMP or another semi-automatic handgun and a taser, they feel a lot different. One's yellow, the other one's black, um, generally, or in the case of the Los Angeles Police Department, it's green. Um, and one you have to turn on and the other one you don't. And so also they're on opposite sides. So my department had a policy where you had to cross draw. So you had to reach across your body. So if you have mess, we practice dry firing and you practice drawing your pistol out of your holster. So it's built in your muscle memory. So you have to physically, the mechanism of drawing is you for a taser is vastly different than the muscle memory built up for you pulling out a gun um, because you're reaching over to your opposite side and then pulling out the taser turning it on and then using it so it, it's just the only thing i can think of is that this person is was unfamiliar with how with her equipment and didn't train uh adequately because you qualify here in Arizona, you qualify with your taser once every two years. So maybe this person is, uh, but before every shift, um, you should, if you're in patrol um, or just a law enforcement officer, um, you should pull out your taser and make sure that it's working properly and at least practice drawing it out and, and making sure that it's functioning properly. So in case you need to use it, that's the case. It seems as though, I don't know if she's never run through the scenario in her mind or she this is something completely um, that where she's was out of her element, but that she hasn't had a lot of she hasn't run through the scenario uh, mentally and she was presented with a scenario that was outside of her wheelhouse and made a poor decision. Yeah, you said that really well. It's, you know, mistake or not, the mistake in the situation is inexcusable uh, and there's just you know, it cost, cost Dante Wright his life. And so I think, I think you put it really well. Um, yeah. Finally, Rocco, and I know we've kept you uh, quite a long time. Uh, the last, the last video I, I wanted to get your reaction on was the, the shooting and killing of Makia Bryant, who um, was the 16 year old girl uh, who had called 
the police because there was an incident outside our house. The, the police arrive, and this is the third example of the body camera that we get. The police arrive on scene, and there's, uh, you know, there's an altercation going on. It's pretty chaotic. The police officer says, you know, stop, stop to a girl who's wielding a knife. Um, it looks like the girl is going to stab an, another girl up against the car. Police officer fires several times and kills Makia Bryant. Um, it turns out one, Makia Bryant, 16. So a, a, another tragic example of a, a young person who has lost their lives. Um, and that Makia Bryant was the one who originally called the police officers because the altercation was happening outside her house. So a, a lot of and this killing uh, came on the same day as the, the Chauvin verdict. So this was one of those like contrasting situations where um, people want to celebrate when it seems like a police officer finally being held accountable for, uh, for his wrongdoing. On the other hand, now we have another you know, uh, black person being killed at the hands of police. So um, in this situation, um, what were your thoughts on the officer's actions um, when he pulled up and, and fired at Makia Bryant? You know, pulling up on a, on a fight, um like that where somebody you don't expect um to uh that some you'd be involved in uh a um deadly encounter essentially and i'm talking about the deadly encounter being somebody looking in the process of stabbing somebody um there's so you have some uh, some tools so if you're the first officer on scene generally you don't want to pull out your taser you want to have the way that it works is if you have less lethal, which a taser would be a less lethal option, um, you have your, if, if there's two officers, one would have lethal cover, which would be a handgun or a rifle, and then the other person would be less lethal. And he would be essentially uh, that way, if, if the person, um, if the less lethal is ineffective or doesn't work, then the lethal can uh, engage the threat. So, um, in this scenario, the officer was the first one on scene and tasers. I've been tased before I've tased other people before. Um, when you're tased, the way this works is you're, there's two prongs that come out of the end of a taser and they look like, uh, little, um, fishing hooks. So they're barbed at the end and they're about an inch long and they will, uh, there'll be a dis the best way is to have a spread. And your if you think about your waistline, your waistline would be the, um, uh, center. So of your body. So if you have a prong north of your center line and one south of your center, center line, that would be the ideal spread of the barbs that you want. And then uh, it creates a pulsing motion similar to uh, that mimics your body's, uh, your muscular skeletal systems, um, pulsing motion when you're kind of like a TENS unit almost. Um, and so that will cause you, your muscular uh, skeletal system involuntarily to lock up. Now, if you're overweight, if you're if you're significantly obese, um, the actually tasers work the best on very muscular guys because there's more muscle and it's uh, your muscular skeletal system is very developed. Um, but if you're overweight, uh, it doesn't have that great of an effect. If you're on drugs, sometimes people can. Um, there may be a disconnect and they may not be able to, they may be able to control the, uh, the taser. Generally, that's not the case, but I've seen with some 
disassociative drugs like um, PCP, that that can be the, the taser, there's less effectiveness with that. Um, and then also, if any of the barbs get dislodged or caught up in clothing, then that circuit, that electrical circuit is no longer in effect. And so then the taser has no effect. So in this split second decision, if you wanted to use the taser, there's no guarantee that this ta that the taser would have worked in this situation. And she may have been able to stab the person beforehand before the taser would have been able to essentially, they could have locked her up or and she could have fallen and then the uh, barb dislodged and she could have got up and continued to stab. So him being the first officer, I think uh, I would be also have a, a lethal, I would go lethal first as far as, far as having a, the lethal option. Now, if another officer came up, I would say, hey, that's less lethal and then have them, you know, um, but in that split second, him engaging her, I think is, it's, it's a, a crappy situation, but that's the best way to preserve and ensure that that's not the other girl wouldn't have been stabbed and, and potentially killed. So um, it's sometimes with law enforcement, you're, you're not given good and bad options. You're given two bad options. So do you let the innocent person get stabbed and uh, try to, or do you shoot the girl? You know, it's, that's a tough situation um, that, that you're placed in sometimes. That it's um, it sounds you know, just going through all these cases that that you really give them thought when you hear of an incident like this that you kind of run through, you know, what would I have done, which is uh, incredible. And, you know, we appreciate those insights so much. I think um, one one thing that we've sort of left out of this discussion and in part because it is kind of like the biggest the cloud that overhangs everything is just sort of the question of race in um, in policing, you know, how, how, how these interactions tend to disproportionately impact um, black and, and minority communities. I wonder maybe as a, as a parting thought, um, when you think about all everything that's sort of been going on, um, do you think about it in sort of the bigger picture uh, sort of this larger context? And if you do, kind of what do you think as as ways forward here? Or or are you kind of focused on just the individual situation and, and, and what happened, um, you know, in that instant? Was it right or was it wrong? Well, so with, with uh, I think that, you know, I, I don't think that anybody would dispute that there's um, throughout our criminal justice system, you know, that there's uh, brown people and African-American people and people that are minorities, um, that there is a, a, a component of, uh, of systemic racism um, in, throughout American society, just in a, not only relegated to the criminal justice system, but over overall. And I think that in order to, that we having by, I come from a different background, you know, I have a very unique background and I can, you know, see, you know, I've lived in um, government subsidized housing. I've gone to a, a rough elementary school and, and, you know, when I was a kid, 
Um, so I, I think that uh, getting a, a diverse pool of applicants, um, reaching out to communities and ensuring that um, the people that are, there's not a lot of, in Arizona, there's not a large population of, uh, of African-Americans. So my interactions with the African-American community are pretty limited. It was mostly Hispanic and white. Um, however, uh, you know, having um, Hispanic officers and having them understand the culture um, in our was really beneficial and recruiting and having African-American officers and having them being able to interact. Um, you know, there were times where I would, you know, they would call for a, a Bosnian guy, a, a Bosnian translator or a, a Serbo-Croatian translator. And, you know, um, it was really beneficial for a family to, for me to show up and speak the same language and understand culturally what it is that they're going through and how, you know, um, what they've, cause I come from a, the same place. So it's for them to hear me and see me was beneficial, I think for them. So having a diverse pool of applicants um, is really beneficial. And then having also uh, cultural sensitivity training, I think is also so that when you're um, uh, interacting, you, you're understanding different cultures and why, you know, if you go into a Muslim house, taking your shoes off when you go inside and or asking for permission, or, you know, when I went to a Somali house, talking to the male representative, as opposed to the females, because, you know, in their culture, the, the male has, is the head of the household, you know, it's a patriarchal um, type culture. So there's certain, you know, having that cultural understanding and background, I think can um, mitigate a lot of these uh, negative interactions and then also taking the time to explain. But now this goes to also, you know, there's a, a push for defunding the police. A lot of this stuff, if you want cultural sensitivity training and you want that requires funding. So there's, um, you know, having proper funding and also proper training as far as that goes would be very beneficial in ensuring a more cohesive um, relationship between law enforcement and the community. Yeah, very, very, uh, very well said. I really particularly like that, you know, the nobody is really denying here the structural racism that that's present, unfortunately, in in our society and global society, you could say. Um, and that when we see elements of racism in policing, it's it's more it's more symptomatic of a broader issue that we have. And as you said, through it, it it permeates throughout the criminal justice system and in so many other systems that we that we have. It just it's it's more visceral, unfortunately, with when these interactions happen um, with the police force. But but yeah, really appreciate uh, you taking the time this afternoon. I I certainly learned a lot, a lot. Yeah, happy to do it, guys. It was very nice talking to you and. Uh... Um, I'm glad I can, you know, give you any insight and I'd be happy to do it again anytime. So, yeah, Rocco, I, I really appreciate it. Um, it's Ricky and I were talking before you came on and it's like, we don't have a ton of people that we are close to personally that are in law enforcement to, to reach out. And sometimes 
provide a, a different perspective on things. And so uh, I think that was really valuable for us and hopefully people listening, it'll, it'll be valuable for them as well. Holy guys. I, uh, you know, I, I, I have a definitely a different kind of perspective. Um, it was kind of, uh, it was interesting, you know, when I was interacting with certain people where they're like, um, you know, they're like, you don't know how hard I had it. I grew up in, in the hood and I'm like, dude, my house was mortared when I was a kid, like, you know, <laughs> so it's like a different perspectives, you know, and they're like, your people are, you know, I had an interaction with a Native American guy and he was like, your people have been keeping me down. This has been keeping my people down for generations. I'm like, well, I just got here in 99. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we, uh, nobody from my family is an immigrant of America other than us. So, <laughs> yeah. so. all right, man. Um, well, again, appreciate the insight and uh, yeah, it, it'll be, it'll be nice. We'll have you on retainer for when we need law enforcement uh, perspective on things. Hot take. All right. <laughs> I will take a payment in a, in, in a, in a cold one. So when we, when I end up yeah. moving up. <laughs> uh, yeah. When, when you move to Boston in the fall, we'll do this in person. Perfect. Sounds great, guys. All right, All right man. I appreciate it. See we'll you guys. Talk to you later. It's been his life. Just like his dad's Driving away Under the weight of the badge He's seen it all In his 15 years Watching our backs Facing our fears So again, thank you to, to Rocco for joining us. Like tremendous insight and in, in giving us a lot of the background on law enforcement stuff that I hadn't previously thought about and probably would never have known without having heard from him. So, you know, big picture wise, again, feel extremely lucky that we got to hear from both Salome and Rocco and that they were generous enough with their time to talk with us this week. I, but there's a, there's a lot to think about. Yeah. I, I, it's exhausting in some ways to hear such uh, open and honest and engaged in these conversations. So I, I'd be curious, Ricky, you know, in, in sitting back after those two conversations, uh, is is there any way to like to, to to tie it together for you? Are there unifying themes that you see between those two conversations? Like how, how now that we sit back after them, um, you know, where where do you go from here? Where do we go from here? Yeah, it's it's definitely the right question, and I'm uh, you know as per usual, not really sure I have the right answer. I think one of the things that that really jumped out to me is the the necessity to continue to just get these different voices and perspective both from obviously people who you know Rocco being having had experience in law enforcement um like both people with with real firsthand experience but really really just everyone because these issues impact everyone or if we're going to to address these issues, it's going to take everyone. So even just getting that like baseline understanding of where people are um, is so, is so, so important. And then, you know, the thing that I loved about uh, a lot of what Salome was talking about is that, that so much of the reaction to certain events is 
scripted is not the right word, but, but people are sort of being told, you know, how you have to view, you know, what happened if you are, uh, you know, liberal progressive, you know, before you even see the, the facts of the case, you, you need to make sure that you're talking about systemic racism. And, and, and perhaps if you're more conservative, you see this and it's like, I need to defend the police officer regardless of, of what happened here. Um, or even, you know, take the Chauvin trial, just like how, how am I supposed to react to the verdict? Should I automatically be rejoicing or do I need to be more reflective or, and, and I think it's in so many ways, these situations just call for, um, for all of these responses. Um, and then, you know, let, you know, trying to, to figure it all out after and not have that predetermined, you know, this is how, how I'm supposed to, to, to view this or interpret this. Yeah, that, that's well said. I think reflecting on the two conversations and how I try to reconcile them, this may seem contradictory, but I don't think it is. But Salome really taking a big picture perspective and forcing us to acknowledge like the systemic issues in our country. And when we talked about the four incidents today, the four killings of um, you know George Floyd and, and Dante Wright and Adam Toledo and Makia um, Bryant, like we can't shy away from the fact that these are all young people of color that were killed at the hands of, of police officers. And uh, you know Salome like trying to continually emphasizing that we we as a country need to face that head on and rec and try to deal with that and look you know what are the systemic issues in our country that lead to these killings absolutely correct Rocco taking each incident one by one and walking it through and saying here is what a police officer could have done differently I, I think that police officer was totally wrong and should be you know held accountable and brought to justice and prosecuted fully for his or her crimes on the other hand you know that police officer i actually think was you know he handled it like i would have handled it and you know this that was you know when you're faced with two bad choices i thought that was powerful was a question you asked of like so there's no sometimes there isn't there is no like good choice when you show up to that and we have to keep that in mind too and that goes to your point of not having just like a, a preconceived narrative in our head and even Rocco's point of like uh we talk about defunding the police and Salome brought this up about reallocating money and generally speaking like I, I kind of agree that that's necessary because a lot of police budgets are bloated and are spent on you know militarization that I don't feel is appropriate um, for police to have in our cities uh on the other hand, then he points to things like police officers sometimes need more of their budget to go towards mental health counselors or an example like Phoenix, where there's maybe not enough officers to be able to do community policing. And so it's not necessarily, that's what makes this stuff so complicated. It's not a one size fits all. We can just say, all right, every every police department in the country needs to be defunded. Or, or he's saying, actually, if we got more um, culturally like, uh, like bias training or implicit bias training and maybe more uh, training on how to like de-escalation tactics, that would actually be far more valuable than taking money away. Uh, although, although in some situations, some police departments, probably their budget should be reduced. So uh, kind of like something you've always said is that it requires just nuance um, in, in all of these situations and conversations. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, so it's kind of what struck me about what you're saying that that unifying theme that with, with Salome, we really looked at the forest and then with Raka, we looked at the trees. And it's really not about, you know, missing one for the other. Um, I think we, we just always, that examination of both 
the events in their in isolation, but also in their in their broader context is how um, is how we need to kind of ex explore these issues if we're gonna gonna kind of get some some progress here as a society. I loved uh, to you know the point that you brought up about people are talking about defunding the police and and in so many ways, rightly so. But also we know what types of programs are the first ones that get cut. And it's always the sense of cultural sensitivity training. It's the um, additional man hours just for things like community policing, which is spending time getting to know your community, which we think should, you know, uh, from from what Rocco said and the kind of what we understand intuitively should really help um, lessen these kinds of uh, events. So there is really, really this this push and pull. And, and it, I mean, it should be obvious to everyone, but these issues are, are really, really complex um, and it's going to require complex solutions, too. Yeah, that, that, that's well said. Um, I feel grateful. Like I said, uh, kind of like emotionally and mentally exhausted after those conversations, but really grateful that um, we got to have them and, and thankful that um, Salome and Rakko were, were so open with us and giving just like unvarnished perspectives on really hard issues. For sure. They make you, uh, you know, the best conversations definitely make you work a little bit, make you think a little more. Um, and they don't, you don't necessarily get out of them exactly what you yeah. like what you imagined and and in many ways that's it's so much better because you learned something so um, i definitely learned a ton and it was it was a lot of fun talking to them great all right, all right man that, that, that was been good a long, again been a long night been a long night but well worth it all right till next time see you yeah We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share an American ideal 
Friends made all the arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, cause the old Main Street may not sell. It's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and change the lies head from folks of different minds because though we did not share. Opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lives had. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Need an early morning bird.